Today's program was brought to you by VisitNapaValley.com, the official page for travel to the Napa Valley, America's legendary wine, food, arts, and wellness capital. For more information, visit www.VisitNapaValley.com. I'm Laura Stanley, host of Inside School Food. You are listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit HeritageRadioNetwork.org for thousands more. Good morning. You're listening to In the Drink on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Joe Campanelli. I'm, uh, when I'm not hosting the In the Drink, I'm also the beverage director of the Epicurean Group of Restaurants, uh, Del Anima, Lartuzzi, Anfora, and La Picho. Um, and if you like this program, you can always listen to it live at 10 a.m. on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. And the program's also available uh, via uh, podcast on iTunes. So thanks so much for listening. I'm really excited today. We have the winemaker, owner, uh, vineyard manager, East Coast sales representative uh, of Belpont Winery um, over in the Willamette Valley in Oregon. On the show, his name is Brian O'Donnell. Welcome to In the Drink. It's great to have you. Thank you, Joe. It's a pleasure to be here. Really excited to have you on the show. I think it's the first time that we've had Oregon uh, represented um, Tell, but I, I want you to tell us a little bit about your history, how, how you got to uh, Oregon. Uh, I believe you started in, in the East Coast and somehow made your way out west. And how did you find this little corner of the, of the Willamette Valley and settle in that area? Yeah, yeah indeed. It was a, a bit of a circuitous route uh, to the Willamette Valley. I uh, was actually born here in Brooklyn. Uh, grew up in Queens. Went to high school, uh, Upper East Side of Manhattan, College in the Bronx. And then I uh, drove through Staten Island on my way to California in uh, 1977. Uh, lived in the San Francisco Bay Area, uh, worked in Silicon Valley, and started making wine just as a hobby in my garage and basement in the, uh, the mid-'80s. And after a few years, uh, the hobby got completely out of control, and we, uh, my wife and I uh, picked, up our, um, picked up our lives and moved up to uh, the Willamette Valley in Oregon, uh, bought a traded our little bungalow in the city for seventy acres out in the country. Kind of an Eddie Arnold Green Acres experience in the in the uh, early days. Um, but we um, yeah established uh, Belpont, bought the property in nineteen ninety two, and um, planted the vineyard starting ninety four. First wines in nineteen ninety six. Wow! And now winemaking has been uh, has gone on in Oregon, the Willamette Valley since the nineteenth century, but kind of think of the modern day of winemaking really is the past 30 or 40 years. Um, that's sort of what I think of uh, when I talk to my staff about Irie Vineyards being established. Um, and so you're still somewhat in those, in those earlier days when you're, you're going out there, maybe only uh, 15 years or so after. Uh, it, it, am I thinking of it in, in, the, in the correct way? Uh, what, what's the history of Oregon to you? Yeah, that, that yeah, that's pretty pretty close. We actually just last month we actually celebrated the fiftieth mm. birthday of Willamette Valley Pinot Noir. Uh, Fifty years since David Lett put the first uh, Pinot vines in the ground. Uh, so this is, in fact, this year is uh, kind of a, a, a year of celebration, celebrating fifty years in, in the wine business for the uh, Willamette Valley in Oregon. Uh, so it's a, it's a pretty exciting time. You know, we, we've we've reached you know, certainly critical mass, um, and there's 
you know, the, the original pioneers, uh, for the most part, are still involved. There are some second-generation folks uh, taking over family domains. And uh, uh, tons of new interest from around the world. Uh, I think there's, there's definitely recognition that this is uh, a special place, if not the special place uh, in the world for, uh, for Pinot Noir. And how have things changed from the time that you got there? What did, what did you find when you were there, and, and how are things different now? Well, certainly a lot, uh, a lot more wineries, uh, a lot more planted acres of, of vineyard. The um, the area, our particular little corner of the Willamette Valley, uh, which is the Amal Carlton area, uh, was kind of a, a little bit on the lunatic fringe of the Willamette Valley at the time. The uh, most of the action was centered around Dundee Hills, and there were only a couple of wineries and a, a dozen or so vineyards uh, in in that neighborhood. Uh, but since then, the area has really grown up around us, and pretty much every nice south-facing hillside right now is planted to, uh, to Pinot Noir and Chardonnay. Yeah, and now your vineyards are also south-facing hillsides, is that correct? And how important is that in the area? Is it possible to, to even ripen and make quality wines if you're more east or north-facing, or is, is it really all about south-facing? Most, most of the vineyards are east, um, hmm. so east, southeast, southwest. Uh, there are a few people planning for sparkling on north-facing slopes. Uh, which is kind of an interesting idea, uh, where you're trying to achieve something a little bit different in terms of the the ripeness and the maturity. But you know, pretty much everything is is due south or you know southeast southwest, and and up on hillsides as well. There's very little planted on the valley floor. And um, I know Yamel Carlton requires at least something like 200 meters of altitude, right? So they're pretty high, pretty high vineyards in there. Yeah, it's actually 200 feet. 200 feet, yes. I'm sorry. Yeah, I'm so, I always think in, uh, in European because we have, most of our wines, I mean, we, we love uh, featuring your wines at, at Le Picho. You can uh, uh, generally find at least the Riesling and Pinot Noir. Uh, Lara Lohenhar and, and I are, are big fans of, of the wines. I should have well, said that at the, at the top of the show. So they're, they're um, vines, and it's an area that has some decent altitude. Um, but what defines Yamil Carlton, what makes that a specific area within the Willamette Valley? Um, because give us a, a little bit of an idea. I've never personally been to the Willamette. I know it's a, a large area, um, over 100 miles across. Um, but the Willamette in itself has, I think, a pretty strong presence and a, a feeling. I mean, maybe people in New York might feel like we know what wines from there taste like, but it seems like in that in that big distance, there must be a, a ton of different terroirs and expositions. What what makes Yamel Carlton unique, and what's what makes Willamette unique? Yeah, as you said, Willamette is a Willamette Valley is a fairly large appellation. The um, I think it's three point two million acres. Wow, uh, which is sec- I think it's the second largest after the Columbia Valley, uh, which straddles Oregon and Washington. But the uh, yeah, it's a hundred miles long from Portland to Eugene. And follows the track of the of the uh, Willamette River. Uh, the most of the vineyards are planted up on on benches and hillsides. There's very little planted in the valley floor, and there are really three sort of two and a half major soil types that really define the different characteristics. Uh, the the Dundee Hills area is all uh, volcanic origin, uh, relatively young in geological terms, twelve million year old uh, of soils derived from basalt. And then the uh, Yamal Carlton area is uh, dominated by sedimentary soils. So it's um, sandstone, siltstone, you know, typically you know, two to three feet, uh, some a little bit deeper. 
and uh, the wines are the wines are quite different from those those two major soil types. Right, and uh, just to clarify, sedimentary soil soils generally come from glacial movements. Is that that correct? comes from the. Uh, it's basically stuff that 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 settled out in the bottom of the ocean, and then got uplifted with uh, with the movement of continental plates. Okay, and so do you, will you find fossil fossils in your uh, ocean fossils in your vineyards? Yeah, we find little uh, oyster shells and things like that from time to time, and there's some uh, 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 little uh, veins of chalk that run through the uh, formations as well. So. But, a uh, a hypothetical vine of the same age and same exposition, farmed the same way, but in Dundee versus Yamel Carlton, how will the expression be different because of uh, of the soil? Yeah, you know we have uh, uh, we have one vineyard in uh, Dundee Hills that we've worked with since the uh, since the nineties, uh, Myrto Vineyard. So we have a pretty nice side by side comparison in our own cellar between mm-hmm. the two, and I, I always find the the volcanic soils from Dundee Hills to have a lot more red fruit character. So strawberry, cherry, raspberry, uh, flavors, aromas. There's a spicy overtones, uh, Christmas spice, Asian spice, a little bit of white white pepper, uh, black pepper as well. And the wines generally have a little higher acidity. The um, When you move over to the, and it's interesting because the, you know, some of these vineyards are only a couple of miles apart, but geologically they're 30 million years apart. Which, yeah, if you, if you didn't hit on the acidity, I was going to ask you about that because it's something I've heard from multiple growers who work with volcanic soils that something in the volcanic soil fixes the acidity. Um, do you have any idea as to why that happens? Is that yeah. one of the beautiful mysteries of nature? Yeah, that's a good <laughs> question. There's actually a guy in uh, Toronto who's an MS who's doing a, uh, a book on volcanic soils, uh, which should be coming out, I think, in about a year. So. Uh, stay tuned. He's he's actually doing the research. He's going you know around the world from Willamette Valley to Mount Etna and other places, you know, researching volcanic soils and what the um, you know similarities are and the underlying uh, factors. So, um, but I, but I do know that just experientially that the Yamel Carlton uh, tends to have more more structure, more tannin. Uh, the fruit profile lends more, lends itself more toward dark fruit, um, black raspberry, black cherry, uh, cassis. Um, a little more structure and more herbal floral characteristics mm-hmm. as well. Uh, so the wines are, are quite distinct, quite different. I think the most in musical terms sometimes that the you know the Dundee Hills has more treble and the Yamal Carlton wines have more bass. I like that. I like that. And one one of the things I've always appreciated about your wines, other than the fact that they just taste really, really good, uh, is the way that you work with the environment, the way that you work with uh, with your land. Um, you're, you're, you've been growing your grapes organically since the 90s. Um, you don't fine or filter most of your wines. Um, and something that uh, I was actually in, in a way surprised to find that this isn't even an issue is that... Um, you don't irrigate your vines. And I always pictured the Oregon, I mean, not most certainly the Pacific Northwest, but really Oregon as being a more humid, wetter area. You're by a river. Um, the thought that people would need to irrigate, to me, was was kind of surprising. I know that certainly in, in Washington, if you're on the kind of desert side, it can be very, very dry in the summer. Um, but um, you guys don't, don't irrigate, and uh, apparently that's, that's not the norm in the area. Yeah, until well, up until about oh twenty five years ago, uh, all the all the vineyards in Oregon were dry farmed. You know, irrigation came in as as a tool um, you know, fairly recently. Uh, it is uh, certainly a little bit controversial um, from a wine quality standpoint, as well as a natural resource utilization standpoint. 
there's a, a in fact there's a little group called the DRC, uh, the Deep Roots Coalition. Not uh, the Domaine della Romani Conti. No. Is that DRC also? That's that. Yeah, it's the secondary. Yeah. Uh, the yeah, less famous was, one. It actually was taken from the Democratic <laughs> Republic of Congo, but. Um, <laughs> But anyway, yeah. Obviously, there's some there's there's a, a play the on deep words roots there. coalition, a deep roots coalition, and yeah. the idea being that if you if you irrigate, your roots won't be as deep. Correct. And uh, and what is the importance? I mean, I, I've, I've what what is the importance of, of deep roots? Is it is it the strength of the vines? Is it the complexity? What, why are deep roots so important to you? Uh, it, all all of the above. You know, it's it's the the, uh, the deep rooted vines tend to be more naturally drought resistant. Uh, the, the theory certainly is that when the the roots dig deep into the mother rock, that, you know they're past the they're past the topsoil. They're into the mother rock, and that's when you really get the expressions of site, um, and the, the and you're, you're mining basically the the, uh, uh, the the subsoil and the site, which creates more complex, more interesting, and more typical uh, wines. And so, what would be the uh, the typical vineyard depth of uh Let's say a ten or fifteen year old uh, vine that has been irrigated versus the root depth of uh, non irrigated. How much? What's the? Is it very drastic? Yeah, you know, the thing that you're going to find, and again, I haven't dug holes in people's irrigated vineyards, so I can't speak from experience. Uh, but you know, certainly the the the, the irrigation, the watering encourages more roots, more shallow roots, um, versus versus a deeper root system. Uh, so in conjunction with the dry farming, one of the practices that we do every couple of years is we actually go and prune the roots. Uh, so we take a, a deep plow, uh, about you know uh, three feet deep, right next to the vines, to to cut some of those uh, shallower root system and encourage more growth down low. More growth down low. Yeah. Very interesting. Now I've actually seen pictures of experiments of uh, vineyards that were treated with fertilizers, with chemical fertilizers versus not and uh the obviously the the vineyards that have been treated with chemical fertilizers the roots stay much closer to the top as well um and that's because obviously the vine roots need not only water but but nutrients so i imagine that if you want the deepest possible roots if this is something that's very important to you you don't irrigate and also absolutely no chemical fertilizers uh, yeah, because very often chemical fertilizers get applied through an irrigation system. Mm. Uh, it's one of, one of the, one of the uh, fairly common uh, called fertigation uh, techniques. Uh, but but certainly, yeah, the, the, you know, the two go hand in hand. And, and the, the, the practices that most of the deep roots folks uh, employ are you know, organic farming uh, practices, uh, you know, making compost and green manure uh, for providing fertility in the vineyard, replenishing the little amount of nitrogen we're taking out. And building up the organic matter in the soil. So these are all really important things. That's right, because the, you can't really do a crop rotation with, uh, with grapevines. Yeah, it's a problem. Because you know, vineyards, by definition, like orchards, are a monoculture. Uh, so the only thing you can really do is you can work, work the fringes, work the environment, work what's around uh, the property. For example, on our, on our, our uh, uh, site, the, we have 70 acres, but only 18 of that is planted to vineyard. Uh, the rest of it is in pasture. It's a uh, native oak savanna, um, and maintaining the, these kind of natural buffer zones uh, in, 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 in is a way of creating some diversity in the environment. And the other thing we can do is 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 what we do in the in between the rows, uh, and we we do a kind of a sophisticated nine-year rotation crop rotation in the rows uh, between the uh, between the the vines, uh, where we're using uh, grasses, native grasses, and then some. 
uh, legumes like uh, crimson clover and oats to provide some biomass to put more organic matter back in the soil. This is a a fascinating conversation. I want to continue it, uh, but we're going to have to take just a a quick break. And we'll be right back with more Belpont Vineyards. And the break song today is called Pale Blue by The Landing. Today's program was brought to you by VisitNapaValley.com. Welcome to the Napa Valley, North America's legendary wine and food capital, where the art of living well is defined, and each season holds a story waiting to be discovered. Life feels slower here, lived at a place where tables are set with care. Fine wine and food are created from the bounty of our own vineyards and gardens, and relationships with friends and family gathered around the table are somehow sweeter. When planning a trip to the Napa Valley, we invite you to visit the destination's official visitor website, visitnapavalley.com, or stop by Napa County's official visitor information center, located in downtown Napa, where our friendly and knowledgeable community ambassadors can assist you in creating your own legendary Napa Valley experiences. The Visitor Information Center is located at 600 Main Street, Napa, and is open from 9 a.m. to 5 p.m., seven days a week, 360 days a year. Your invitation to experience the Napa Valley beckons. Take a deep breath, lose yourself in our quiet green and golden hills, renew your body and spirit, taste our legendary wines and cuisine, and experience the people who make this valley like no other in the world. For more information, go to visitnapavalley.com. All right, we're back on In the Drink with Brian O'Donnell from Belpont Vineyards in a different valley, in the Willamette Valley um, in Oregon, making some absolutely beautiful organic and uh, now biodynamic wines um, that you can find on our wine list over at Lepicho. Um, Ms. Lara Lohenhar and I are big fans of, of the wine. So welcome back to the show. Uh, before we left, we were talking about biodiversity in the vineyard and I would love to focus a little more on this idea of you having 70 acres of, uh, of land, but only devoting 18 of those acres to, uh, to actual vineyard sites. That um, says to me that there's, you have certainly a lot more potential to, uh, you can grow it if, if you want to, but it sounds like it's a, uh, an intentional decision to leave some of it either as trees or as, as some other type of farmland. What sort of relationship does the rest of the, the, your land have on the vines? Um, and is there kind of a perfect balance? Would you, would you recommend this kind of 18 acres to set, you know, to uh, 42 or my math's probably terrible. Uh, is there like a, a one third to two thirds kind of balance or how, how does it all kind of work together? And how do you, how do you picture this? 
Yeah, so that's a good question. Every uh, every site is different, and you know the there's no perfect you know balance. There's no perfect ratio, uh, but you know clearly having you know a 15 acre property with 14.5 planted to grapevine vines and having neighbors next to you doing the exact same thing. I mean, there's certainly places in the old world that do that and do it very successfully, uh, but they certainly you know struggle with the with the uh, with the impacts of the of monoculture. Uh, on our property, you know, we have um, uh, it was certainly a pretty a few steep ravines and hillsides, native oaks around. We places that we couldn't really plant if we wanted to, um, and the uh, uh, for people who haven't been to the Lamb Valley, the uh, it's, it's a very very different than the wine growing regions because pretty much all the vineyards are up on the up on the uh, hillsides. There's virtually nothing on the valley floor. Uh, the valley floor is planted to to wheat, uh, to hazelnuts. Uh, Seed crops, grass seed, uh, clover. Uh, so we we kind of have a diverse agricultural base, sort of built in with the uh, into into the valley to begin with. Um, and then in our place, what the the kind of the system that we've developed over the years is uh, integrating livestock into the mm-hmm. operation. This is kind of a, a, a pre-industrial farm, if you will, uh, where we're doing we're raising uh, market lambs uh, as well. We've got some uh, a few beef cattle, uh, you know, chickens, geese. And everything is kind of works together uh, in supporting the vineyard. Uh, so, for example, during the winter, we put the we we, we uh, put the sheep in the vineyard um, for a couple of months before the vines start growing. Uh, they they eat the grass, fertilize as they go, and that that basically saves us uh, one trip through the vineyard with the tractor to mow the grass. So we're you know cutting down mm-hmm. on fossil fuel use and and uh, pollution and so on and so forth. And the uh, yeah, right now, if you look at our vineyard, the uh, it looks like a golf course on the inside because the, the the sheep have got stuff mowed down perfectly. You can right. take your putter out there if you wanted to and and start uh, and practice. Um, and I've heard it. I don't know if the sheep sheep hoof is the is the same as uh, maybe a, a horse. They they weigh less, but I've heard that there is a natural soil aeration that happens from a hoof going through it, as opposed to compacting it from the the uh, tractor. Do you find that that to be the case? Yeah, that, that certainly makes sense. Yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's that. Well, that that's super interesting. And uh, I also read that you have uh, that you have some bees on the on the property. Um, uh, super interested in this. Uh, uh, there's you know there's there's been uh, some local beekeeping here in uh, in New York City. Um, I've been a real big fan of, there's a show on CNN, uh, Morgan Spurlock, Inside Man. And I just watched, I don't know if you're familiar with it. I just watched, he did a a whole thing about, uh, industrial commercial and local beekeeping and what's going on with that. Now the grapevines, uh, are self-pollinating, right? So do the bees even pay attention to the grapevines or they, they just... Yeah, yeah, they don't. They, they you yeah. know, we have a uh, we have a lot of other flowering plants mm-hmm. around the property. You know, um, we have a small small orchard that goes back. The the, the property we're on was one of the original uh, wagon train destinations. It was a, it's been a farm since the eighteen forties, late eighteen forties. Wait a second, wagon train is in Oregon Trail. Oregon Trail. Wow. Yeah, yeah. yeah actually, the the <laughs> Carlton area is is the uh, north the Amhill Valley. And that was the final destination for a lot of the early uh, Oregon Trail pioneers. They went overland uh, to Oregon City, and then they hopped on a steamship, basically a paddle wheel steamer up to Lafayette, and then fanned out into the valley where we are now. 
So there was this 19th century allure of this very fertile, beautiful valley that would be a great place to, to live and, and settle down. And then it happened again at the end of the 20th century. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's a, it's a, it's a pretty, uh, for, for those who haven't visited, uh, the um, uh, Willamette Valley is a pretty special place. What, what's it like for a visitor? What, what would be your tips for someone who wanted to, to come visit? How far are you, would you fly into Portland and then how do you get up there? What's, what's the, the method to do this? Yeah, the best thing to do is, is to, uh, Portland's the main airport, um, spend a day or two uh, in Portland on the front end or the tail end. There's a terrific food and wine scene uh, in Portland. A lot of transplanted New Yorkers out there. You hear a lot of New York accents when you're hanging out in Portland. The, um, and then the, the uh, wine country is about basically an hour drive uh, from there. And so you spend a couple nights in Portland. You come out to Willamette Valley. There is everything from the, the Allison Inn and Spa, which is a super um, kind of high-end experience, to you know, really uh, cool, funky B&Bs and uh, pretty much everything in between. Great. And has the... Uh Portland food scene really have you found that that's kind of gone hand in hand with uh with the wineries do you guys communicate a lot um I know that the restaurants in Portland keep getting better and uh more have more notoriety have you seen any effect yeah there's definitely a a uh a symbiotic relationship uh between the um you know between wine country and Portland the uh you know for us we're a small winery we uh, do our own deliveries I actually you know, deliver wine to restaurants every week uh, in town, uh, straight from my cellar to their uh, to their their wine coolers. Um, you personally deliver. The- I personally personally deliver it, and uh, very often I do it on my bicycle as well. Now, how many do you have? Like a, a little trailer behind you? Yeah, a little little trailer. I can uh, one on the radio, so I can't show you a picture. But if you go to our Facebook page, there's a picture of the uh, the, the little uh, wine little wine delivery setup. That blows my mind. So do most wineries have like a, a tasting room and normal tasting room hours where you might find in in uh, Napa Valley, for instance? Yeah, uh, certainly. Uh, now there are more and more. When we first got started, there, there, there weren't as many. Uh, there's a little group called, uh, 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 I think it's called Oregon 365, mm-hmm. uh, that have tasting rooms open every day of the year. Um, you know, we, we are, we're open by appointment, um, and we do a couple of events a year. So I'd you know I'd recommend for um, our listeners that the most interesting thing about any winery isn't the tasting room and it's not the winery itself but the the vineyards because many wineries look very similar. Uh, tasting room you can taste you know you can taste the wines in your Portland restaurant or in New York, uh, but vineyards I think are are truly unique and no two are, are the same. How would how would our guests? get good vineyard tours like rather than just going and showing up and you know paying to taste through a couple of wines which is fun i i love tasting through wines but to ha- i think you get a really full experience by getting out into the vineyards and, and seeing them yeah and that's uh that, that's where you know people like uh, uh, some of the smaller wineries that don't have tasting rooms uh, come into play you have to do a little bit of homework you have to figure out where you want to go you got to call up or email make appointments ahead of time uh, but typically, when people show up at my place for an appointment, you know, if, uh, I just look at the, look at the shoes they're wearing. If they're wearing high heels, we're probably not going to go out in the vineyard. Uh, but I'll always offer that as the first thing, as a place to start, and you know, go out in the vineyard and talk about what we're doing there. 
and then come on and come down to the winery, sit down at a picnic table if the day is nice, and, and taste through a few things. Yeah. That, I mean, I think that's really good advice that you don't hear too often. If you're going to visit a winery, don't wear heels. Wear shoes that you, that you don't mind if they get a little muddy. Um, because if it's rained in the past couple of days, that it might be muddy out there. But get get out and see. I think seeing the vineyard sites is what what is truly uh, special and, and unique. Um, so I'm I'm curious. I've read about uh, a wine that um, I guess you've had for for a while, but maybe we might see a bottle in New York, the Gamay grape. Um, most I'm most familiar, obviously, as I said before, the Riesling and Pinot Noirs, which which I absolutely love. I know you make Chardonnay and Pinot Gris, um, but I've heard you have some planting of, of Gamay, which which is really interesting to me. Uh, yeah, um, well, to back up, Willamette Valley is probably. Well, Gamay Noir is probably the number two uh, red variety in the, in the Willamette Valley, uh, which is a little misleading because Pinot Noir is like 99.5%. Um, but of that half percent, uh, uh, Gamay uh, is, is probably the next, uh, mm-hmm. next most widely planted. Uh, it does pretty well there. It is uh, – I've kind of we, – we had it on our property since uh, 1994, our original planting, and – I really wanted it to taste like Cru Beaujolais, uh, but it, it doesn't. Um, so for years, I've blended it into a little pasta grande rosé that we called Cuvée Contraire. But uh, recently, in, <clears throat> starting in 2009, I kind of gave up wanting it to taste like Cru Beaujolais and realized that maybe it's like something from Val d'Asta or, or some other uh, other Gamay region. And the wines are kind of cool. They're, they're, they're fun. They're spicy. Um, they have a little bit of tannin uh, without a whole lot of structure behind them. Um, so it's it's kind of a fun uh, uh, diversion, if you so will. So you started bottling it just as 100% Gamay. 100% Gamay, yeah. And is this yeah. available in New York or just through your mail? Yeah, it's not. It's pretty much <laughs> just at the winery. Just at the winery. Yeah, and, and a couple of places in Portland that twist my arm to give them a few bottles. Oh, we might be trying to twist your arm to send some over here. Well, you won't actually, have to bring it over on a bicycle, though. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that'd be, that'd be a long trip. The... Um, yeah, we're actually we actually planned a little bit more uh, gamay this last year. So instead of having you know enough for forty cases a year, uh, by next year we should have enough for about a hundred cases. Yeah. So I'll, I'll you know I'll keep you on the list. Please please let us know. Uh, we're, we're I know Larry and I are big uh, gamay fans, and to have a delicious one from Oregon sounds sounds really exciting. Now, what do you think is the future of the Yamel Carlton area? Uh, what do you think is going to do well there? Uh, in the next few years, well, you know, the um, you, know, you mentioned uh, Gamay. You know, uh, I think the the really the up and coming uh, varietal for the Willamette Valley in general, Yamal Carlton uh, in particular, is Chardonnay. The um, uh, the quality of of Chardonnay has uh, coming from Willamette Valley has increased dramatically in the last uh, ten years, uh, with access to to better clonal selections uh, from Burgundy. And, and just the focus of the winemakers. You know, 10 years ago, if I went to talk to one of my neighbors, or even five years ago, you know, talk to one of my neighboring uh, wineries, mm-hmm. we'd spend all our time talking about Pinot Noir. Today, we'll spend half our time talking about Chardonnay. Uh, so there's a lot more brain power really going into it. Because I, I find that, uh, well, obviously, Willamette known for you know, the Pinot, Pinot Noir, Pinot Blanc a little bit, right? Pinot Gris and Chardonnay. Uh, it seems like uh, I guess it makes sense with as the the counterpart to Pinot Noir, but I know that you're also a big fan of more aromatic grapes like Riesling. 
and uh, Alsatian varietals in the area. Uh, it's unique and interesting that that both of those can grow side by side. Yeah, it's true. The uh, Willamette Valley's got tremendous potential for you know, any any cool climate you know, white variety. They, they used you know, thirty years ago. There's some killer Chenin Blanc uh, coming out. Wow. That was a dead ringer for a great Sauvignon, but nobody could sell it. So yeah. we gave up. It, you know, it really. You know, the viticultural potential is there for almost anything, any cool climate, white variety. It's really more of a, you know, becomes more of a marketing issue and how many different things do you want to talk about and how many things do you want to be really good at. Um, but clearly the, the, the community is, is focused now on, on Chardonnay. Um, you know, there's also a little skunk works on Riesling, mm-hmm. um, you know, trying to uh, up the profile of, uh, of on the technical side as well as in the, on the market side. Uh, but Chardonnay is the thing that people are – that's going to be the where, where the energy gets devoted on the white wine side for the next you know, 50 years. And uh, here, here's one more tip for when you uh, go and visit a winery or, or meet a winemaker whose wines you're really a fan of. Always ask if uh, they have any recommendations for, uh, for other wines that, that, they, that they really like because um, chances are if you like their wines and they like the other ones, you're going to like the other ones as well. So who's making interesting Chardonnay or who, who are some other growers that, that you, you kind of uh, really enjoy what they're doing? Oh, so now I'm going to get in trouble because, uh-huh. of course, I'm going to forget somebody who I should be, I should be mentioning. But we, we just had a Chardonnay Symposium in Oregon um, last weekend. Uh, it was a fifth annual, so I got to taste about 50 of my neighbor's, uh, neighbor's wines. Um, you know, certainly the, uh, the, the uh, Evening Land, Bergstrom, Brickhouse, um, a bunch of newcomers, uh, Metello, uh, Good, Goodfellow Family Wines, uh, Lundine. There are just a ton of really, really good Chardonnay coming out of All right. Oregon now. We'll be on the lookout for it. Um, thank you so much, Ryan. It's been such a, a pleasure to have you on the show. Oh, thank you. My and, pleasure. And you guys should definitely look out for Belpont Wines. They are some of the most soulful, beautiful, and really, truly delicious wines that I've had uh, out of Oregon. So uh, look out for them, and you'll, you'll see them on our list at, at Lepicho. Um, I also would love to thank uh, Gene Heyer from Artisan Wines, uh, who's helped to organize uh, the show today, and our producers, Joy Morales and Jack Inslee. Thank you, thank you guys for uh, always making sure this goes well. And thanks to all of you for listening. This has been In the Drink on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore radio. You can email us with questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.